Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Cities are powerful, more powerful than most people understand. In The New Localism, How Cities Can Thrive in the Age of Populism, published by the Brookings Institution Press, authors Bruce Katz and Jeremy Nowak show where the real power to create change resides and how it can be used to address our most serious social, economic, and environmental challenges. In this episode of the Brookings Cafeteria, my colleague Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, sits down with the authors to discuss the important power shift from national governments to states and cities. Also in this episode, expert Molly Reynolds lets us know what's happening in Congress in the wake of President Trump's first State of the Union address. How will Congress react to the President's statements on immigration, infrastructure, and other policy matters? Molly Reynolds breaks it down. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. If you have a question for a Brookings expert, record it and send it to me at bcp at brookings.edu. All right, first up today, Molly Reynolds, followed by the interview. My name is Molly Reynolds. I'm a fellow in the Governance Studies Program at the Brookings Institution. President Trump delivered his first State of the Union address to Congress this week, which always serves as an important marker on the legislative calendar that dictates much of the pace and rhythm of Congress's work each year. Media rhetoric aside, any effects of the speech on the president's approval ratings, which for this president remain low, are likely to be small and fade quickly. The viewership of the State of the Union addresses has become more partisan in recent years, with voters who identify with the president's party tuning in and those who don't turning on something else. Many people who chose to watch the speech, in other words, are already those who support the president. The speech can, however, serve as an agenda-setting function, directing the attention of both Congress and the public to certain issues over others. Judged by that yardstick, what should we make of Trump's speech and its consequences for what might happen in Congress in the coming weeks? Perhaps the most important legislative section of the speech came when Trump discussed immigration. He identified four pillars of his plan, a path to citizenship for undocumented individuals brought to the country by their parents, increased border security, including a wall, an elimination of the visa lottery, and changes to the family reunification-based immigration process. The conventional wisdom on Capitol Hill has been that for Congress to pass something on immigration that provides any permanent status for DREAMers, it would take strong signals from the Trump administration. By spending a significant amount of time on the contours of an immigration plan in the speech, Trump did signal his position, as well as some misunderstandings about how the current system works, strongly to Congress. But given what that position is, especially the components involving the visa lottery and family reunification, Trump's remarks don't portend a large-scale immigration compromise in the coming weeks. The president dug in on a more conservative position that is likely to alienate some congressional Democrats, and some congressional conservatives are apt to oppose Trump's proposal because they object to anything that can be characterized as amnesty. Trump may see his plan as a down-the-middle compromise, that's how he described it during the speech, but Congress is not likely to agree. Immigration negotiations are currently tied up with the debate over how to keep the government open and running past the expiration of the current short-term spending bill, making Trump's high-profile embrace of a proposal that will be difficult to pass even more consequential. In contrast to the sizable portion of the speech spent on the specifics of his approach to immigration, President Trump devoted just a few sentences to infrastructure, an issue his administration has been claiming to want on the congressional agenda for most of its first year, but in which they have failed to articulate detailed plans. He stressed that his proposal will rely heavily on state and local contributions, which could be a difficult sell for members of Congress from less densely populated states and those with cash-strapped state and local governments. The structure of the plan also matters for its potential to attract Democratic support, limiting what Republicans see as its political value as a way to highlight divisions among their political opponents ahead of the 2018 midterms. The president also did not address how he plans to pay for the plan. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce recently called for an increase in the gas tax in order to cover increased infrastructure spending, but that idea is a non-starter with many congressional Republicans. Besides lots of talk on immigration and little talk on infrastructure, Another potential congressional priority received virtually no attention, Obamacare. President Trump touted the repeal of the requirement that individuals purchase health insurance as part of the tax bill as, quote, the core of disastrous Obamacare, but there was no additional discussion of returning to Republicans' failed efforts to eliminate more of the law in 2018. 
The strategy of trying to sell voters on the idea that a key element of the law was repealed while ignoring earlier promises to repeal the law and branch is likely a preview of what's to come for Republican congressional candidates over the next 10 months. The State of the Union was also largely void of any discussion of Congress's most pressing priority, keeping the government running past February 8th when the current short-term spending bill expires. At least one more short continuing resolution is likely to be needed, but even that might not be enough time for Congress to finish its spending work for the year. And as February unfolds, keep your eye on the debt limit, which Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin said this week should be raised by February 28th. The Congressional Budget Office has put the date by which action is necessary at mid-March. Depending on how things go, the debt ceiling could become a bargaining chip in any ongoing negotiations. But it, like most fiscal issues, was not mentioned at all in the president's speech this week. Presidential speech always brings extra attention to Capitol Hill, but as faithful podcast listeners know, there's always something happening in Congress. And now, on with the interview with Bruce Katz and Jeremy Nowak. Here's my colleague, Bill Finan. Thank you, Fred, and welcome, Bruce and Jeremy. You begin your book with a bold statement. This is a book about reimagining power. What do you mean by that? The new localism is essentially a book about reimagining power. Mm. In the past, we've thought about power as something that was really rested in the government. And therefore, for cities or counties or metropolitan areas, would depend upon higher levels of government deciding to give up power and devolve it down to, quote unquote, lower levels of government. But cities are more than governments. Cities are networks of institutions and leaders that cut across public, private, civic, university, environmental, community sectors, and also their economies. So when we think about cities and their ability to solve problems, it's not just about the power that rests within government, but about market power, the strength of their economies, or civic power, the strength of their social capital. So we actually believe cities are more powerful than national leaders and, frankly, most of our elite media understand. And that's why we're so positive about the potential of new localism to take hold. Jeremy? Yes. This is a book about practices more than policy. And what we see and observe at the local level is a set of practices at the intersection of the civic, the public, and private that are, in fact, stepping up and solving problems. So we observe those practices, and then we say, what can we learn from that? And how is that related to the big structural changes that are happening out there in society today? The book's title is The New Localism, an ism, not socialism, not capitalism, definitely not populism or Trumpism. What is the new localism? What kind of ism is this? Is there a nutshell slogan to each city according to its ability, to each city according to its needs? New localism is the way we solve problems in the 21st century, whether the problem is economic opportunity or the aging of our society or the opioid crisis or the future of work or climate change. In the 20th century, we tended to solve problems top-down through a specialized government agency. We're now solving problems bottom-up. In the 20th century, we tended to think about the public sector, national governments, states, provinces, solving the hard challenges. Uh, This is about networks because Mm -hmm. cities and counties are networks, networks of institutions and leaders that come together to do grand things together. And finally, in the past, we tended to think about domestic problem solving. But cities now exist in the global sphere, and therefore ideas, innovation, and capital are moving across global circuits, and cities watch each other because Mm. they're always looking to see, well, who's doing something about X or Y or Z, and can we copy them, mimic them, plagiarize from them, and do it one step better? So this is the way a networked society and a networked economy, a networked world moves forward, bottom up through cities. New localism and populism, though, have common parents, and I think this is really important. And the common parentage has to do with the structural transformation of the global economy over the last 40 years, and that has created significant dislocations. There have been winners. There have been losers, and it has generated 
a politics, both in Europe, the U.S., and in other places, a politics of grievances. However, much of those politics has no ability to solve the very problems that are putting populist politicians either on the ballot or, in some cases, in office. At the same time, new localism has emerged as a way to solve some of those problems. It gets much less play in the press. There's much less understanding of it than populism, whether it's the populism of the right or the populism of the left. But in fact, there are these practices to solve problems that are being played out in the Pittsburghs and the Indianapolises Mm -hmm. and the Copenhagens of the world that we identify and talk about in the book. And that is the counterpoint that we're trying to create is that you've got a politics of grievance and you have a practice of problem solving. And that in large part, what we need to do is expedite the practices of problem solving rather than the politics of grievance. Yeah, one of the questions I wanted to ask is how do you define populism? So you're defining it as the uh, politics of grievance because after all, the subtitle of your book is How Cities Can Thrive in the Age of Populism. You note in the book that localism has a history, that it has roots in the second half of the 20th century. Can you briefly describe that history? In the second half of the 20th century, cities became, in the U.S. in particular, became places where they were the highest levels of poverty, where the economy was not functioning. We all know that from the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s, the economy was heavily deconcentrated out of the central core of cities. There were no federal policies that were going to rescue those cities. And increasingly, there was an architecture of problem solving that got built by civic and political leaders and economic leaders in those places, whether it was through business improvement districts, community development groups, whatever, to try to revitalize those communities. They were both bottom-up and top-down. It was at the intersection of public, private, and civic. And it was that very architecture of problem-solving that really came from need and came because there was no cavalry that was coming to the rescue that really was the prototype for what we're seeing at in many, many ways for the repositioning of cities as it relates to the global economy. So that architecture was built because there was no other way to go. There mm-hmm. was no other route. And we're now seeing it go into hyperspeed. Yeah, what Jeremy and I think is that the ability of cities to problem solve today very much rests on what they've achieved in the past. And there was a sort of a natural trajectory starting in the 70s and the 80s from quality placemaking to dealing with the crime issue to dealing with the underperformance of schools, ultimately on up to economic competitiveness, trade and investment, even climate change. What we've seen cities do over the past 40 or 50 years in the United States and frankly across the world is keep getting better and better at both problem solving and collaborative governance of working well together Mm -hmm. across sectors. So the ability of cities today to perform at a time when the federal government has left the building and many states are hostile in the United States is because they have a history. They have a past of doing grand things. And we think that collaborative governance has been understudied, underanalyzed. And part of what we try to address in the book is the meaning of co-governance across sectors, again, across civil society, the private sector, and the public sector. That's the dynamism of locality that we want to capture. In the book, you outline the various dimensions of the new localism and say it can be defined by seven characteristics. I'd like to go through those characteristics and ask you to briefly describe each, give an example. The first characteristic, you say, a new localism holds as a basic tenet that cities and their metropolitan communities are the level of society that will address many of the economic, social, and environmental challenges facing the world today. Yeah, I think we start with this bold assertion that cities can problem solve, and that's because they're the centers of national economies, they're the centers of global trade and investment, they have all this civic power, and they're interdisciplinary and cross-sectoral. They're networks, not governments. And we think a lot of the challenges today require these interdisciplinary approaches. So if you're government and you're presented with traffic congestion and you go to your transportation agency, the answer was always widen the road. If you're a Mm -hmm. city and you're presented with the same challenge, you'll say, well, wait a second. 
why don't we change the location of housing or so people can walk to work or bike to work? I mean, your solution set is much broader because you come at issues from a comprehensive and integrated way. The second characteristic is new localism is a mechanism for converting the self-organizing power of markets and civil society into structured physical and financial resources and ultimately political power. So we think that there's an alchemy at play in cities, Mm -hmm. that cities start with market power. I mean, they are the economy. There is no national economy. The national economy is just an aggregate of city and metropolitan economies. The question is how you leverage that market power for private, public, and civic resources that can be invested in the future, in innovation, in infrastructure, in inclusion. And what we see happening in cities today, both in the United States and across the world, is that we're creating new kinds of financial instruments, green bonds, for example, that enable cities to use their market power to invest in what they know is a solution, green infrastructure. And this is the natural order of events. It's not that we're waiting for Wall Street to invent the next financial instrument. We saw what happened when that happened. We're basically creating a world for cities, by cities, building off of market power. And one thing you've mentioned before in conversations that cities, especially smaller cities too, in say the red states, can be economic dynamos that spread economic wealth and growth to surrounding areas. So the United States, as an example, is 388 metropolitan areas. Every metropolitan area has a core city, older suburbs, newer suburbs, and rural areas. It's all based on commuter sheds, commuting patterns. When the city does well, there's the potential for rural areas to do well, and vice versa. So this urban-rural divide that people talk about in the United States actually doesn't exist in the same way as the populace perceives it. It's not just Manhattan and Kansas. Mm -hmm. Half of rural America lives in metropolitan America. So if we're going to solve the urban-rural rift, it's going to happen within these metropolitan envelopes as the prosperity of one place transfers to another and vice versa. And we were very careful in this book to concentrate on places that were not necessarily the usual suspects. Mm So there was a, one of the narratives in the le- election had to do with the rural and urban divide. Another narrative had to do with the coasts and the rest of the nation. Uh, we concentrate on cities and we spend a lot of time talking about you know, the Kansas cities, the St. Louis's, the other places where there are terrific things that are happening. And to make it clear that it's not about San Francisco and New York and Boston. There is a nation where there are great opportunities where there's significant leadership happening, where people are building off the assets of place in really innovative ways. And it's a book that really presents that. A third characteristic of new localism in your book, as you describe them, is new localism reflects a commitment to a new kind of problem solving that is distinct from the uniformity of policymaking. Yes, the nature of pragmatism is that it's not one size fits all. And there is the nature, the further you go up, in policymaking versus pragmatic practice. The further you go up the Federalist chain, there will be a one-size-fits-all perspective. So, you know, federal housing policy is supposed to be the same for San Francisco as it is for Cleveland, which, of course, makes no sense Mm -hmm. whatsoever, right? You need to say what's the nature of that market, what's the nature of those problems, and be able to advise policy that would work for those places. In many ways, what this book is about is reverse engineering public policy and saying what people need at the local level and the problems they need, they want to start from there, and then we'd want to build a public policy that goes from the local back up to the national. It's really, really important to think of it this way. In many ways, new localism is more efficient and effective than traditional ways of problem solving because you're you're solving the problems that you actually have in that right. particular city or metropolitan area. You're not solving the problems that some other jurisdiction has mm-hmm. that a U.S. senator decided you should solve. And so we think very much the bottom-up nature of problem solving today is both going to save resources because you're sort of fit to purpose and leverage resources because you're able to use the market power of different places to actually crack at issues. 
a fourth characteristic of new localism is that it has elements of both representative and participatory democracy. Yeah, and that's really an important part. I mean, so one of the chapters, for example, that we spend time talking about that is the Indianapolis chapter, where we use a case study to talk about the nature of governance Mm -hmm. in Indianapolis and how civic and business leaders came together to say, what do we have to do to reposition a city that, if you go back to the 1970s and 1980s, had significant problems and now is a really dynamic story. So, Look, democracy at the end of the day is about elections, of course, but it isn't just about elections, but it's about the way we participate in our place, the way we relate to that place, and the way we ultimately co-govern those places. I think in many respects in the 21st century, citizens don't want to give their proxy necessarily to elected officials alone. They actually feel that they can participate in the problem-solving exercise. And that's what participatory democracy and that's what cities are. There's no way to have a participatory democracy with the federal government or state governments. They're governments. They're not networks. But you can in your street, in your neighborhood, in your city, you can participate as a problem solver. Think about what that means in terms of environmental issues. I mean we've got thousands of groups that are volunteer groups that spend time trying to work on things like watersheds and other important environmental resources. And it doesn't happen because only there is a governmental process, but it happens because people have a relationship to a place and they care about the place and they become volunteers and they vote around what their understanding of the place is. That's always been the magic of America. It's a more inclusive and dynamic democracy is what you're describing. That's right. So fast though. Yeah. The fifth characteristic you describe, new localism, it's intensely focused on maximizing value for long-term prosperity rather than short-term private profit or political gain. Well, from the beginning of time, cities are long-term assets. Mm. Right? That's As Americans, wherever we go somewhere, we tend to go to Athens or Rome, Jerusalem. We visit the great cities of the past. They are long-term assets. And they're stewards, whether they're political leaders, business people, philanthropy, universities – are also in it for the long term. So a lot of what's happening in the United States and across the world today is we're trying to build new kinds of institutions and instruments to guard against short-term thinking. Let's make the profit this quarter. And a lot of our examples in this book, whether it's the Copenhagen City and Port Development Corporation, whether in Indianapolis it's the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, or whether it's in Pittsburgh, this collaboration of universities and philanthropies, they're there for the long haul. They're not leaving. And therefore, they think about value across decades, not across months. And this is counter to what was so much part of the DNA in the USA, right? If you think of the USA as a place where you could always move to the next jurisdiction, you could always be part of westward expansion, you could always forget about the core and suburbanize. Well, in fact, you can't, right? We're at a different place in the U.S. and We certainly have become a different place in the last 30 or 40 years where we realize that these long-term assets that we built have value that the economy has revalued them, and what we have to do is become participants and stewards and investors in those places. Sixth characteristic, new localism simultaneously embraces the local and the global, the latter being a source of immense and still unrealized benefits and power. One of the really curious things about globalization is that at the same time we have a global society where we think about the flows of capital and trade and people and innovation and the circuits all around the world. At the same time, paradoxically, the local has become really important. So there's a convergence of the local and the global at the same time. And we spend a lot of time in the book talking about that. Now, there are a lot of aspects to that. One aspect of that is that there are certain cities and certain places where those local places have become absolutely fundamental as hubs of the global economy. It's also true that there's been a kind of a leveling effect out there in the world where the incumbency of the locality is no longer as important as it was before and we're creating new global players locally where you can key into the global economy in a new way than ever before. And so... As the power of the nation state gets redefined 
And we don't know how this is going to play out in the next 30 or 40 or 50 years. As the meaning of national sovereignty changes, then the meaning of local identity and the meaning of local power and economic power and the meaning of the local civic space becomes really quite important. We're seeing that play out all over the world. We forget that the nation state is about a three or four hundred year old uh, Mm -hmm. invention. And prior to the nation state, there were city states and there were empires that were built on city states. And you can argue that through globalization, we're having a reconnection to the city state in many ways because of the nature of the economy. Mm -hmm. And so we will probably see new city states. Now, is there a role for the nation state? Of course there is. And there's nothing in this book that in any ways says that the nation state isn't important. There are many important roles that only the nation state can provide. But at the same time, globalization means that the local has new power and a new role than it had before. I can see another book in your future. <laughs> One that's not going to make called it. It's called The Modern Hunsiatic League. Yes, The Modern Hunsiatic League. Right. I hope that wasn't too garbled, but that was No, the, no, uh, no. It, it came across very nicely, actually. I, I know a few international relations scholars are not going to be happy to hear this. So. Well, um, it looks very complex now. Yeah. And, and it's in play. We don't know what it'll mean. And you can see this in Spain, right? We actually don't know. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, the EU can say, no, we want to freeze in time the Spanish nation state because it's in our political interest to do that for certain kinds of stability. I mean, that makes sense. On the other hand, as regional identities that are pre-national, pre-nation state, whether it's in Scotland or Barcelona and Quebec, they might assert themselves in particular ways. And at the very least, they will renegotiate autonomy from the center, right? Mm -hmm. And because they now have a global platform where they can plug and play, right? Like any technological platform they can now plug and play. I think climate change may be the area where we're really seeing the convergence of the local and the global because, Mm -hmm. you know, as cities see nation states dithering and not really able to act with alacrity, starting with the United States, what they're trying to figure out is how do we create norms and models of behavior across multiple cities, both developed cities and developing cities? Because when push comes to shove, A lot of the issues with climate change relate to urbanization, relate to energy source, relate to buildings, relate to transport. So a lot of these issues are within the control or the influence of cities. And so climate change is becoming one of the first areas where we're seeing collective action by cities across the world to do what the nation states can't do or won't do. And many of the institutions that we focus on in many of the case studies are institutions, whether they're universities or philanthropies or certain kinds of businesses, that are fundamentally global institutions now. And so there may be a reaction to globalization from the one, but the dynamics of cities and of economies are that they've got a set of institutions that are not getting off the global train. In fact, if anything, I mean, think of a university where it's commercialization of research, where its uh, customers come from, its students, where the university faculties come from, its relationships with knowledge building across the world. These are global institutions, and they will only make it in the future as global institutions. They want to strengthen global ties. Mm -hmm. They're trying to create brands globally, as all the great universities are doing right now. So one of the questions for us is, what does it mean to be in a world where on the one hand you've got a reaction against globalization because of cultural anxiety, economic dislocation. These are all real issues, but the dynamism of the society is really moving toward global identity. Who mediates that? Where does that get mediated? And it's not being well mediated in national politics. So we think it's being mediated through local problem solving. And that's happening in the Indianapolises of the world, not just in the New Yorks and the San Franciscos of the world. The seventh characteristic of new localism, as you write in the book, is it reflects a new horizontal rather than vertical mechanism for society to solve hard problems. Yeah, very much so. I think the way the world operates today is through horizontal networks. And it's cities watching other cities, capturing, codifying, adapting, adopting, replicating, scaling innovations. When you live in a horizontal world, 
what matters are norms and models of growth, governance, and finance. And that's what this book ultimately is about. We are really trying to tell stories of places, Pittsburgh around growth or Indianapolis around governance or Copenhagen around finance, where certain cities have invented an approach over multiple decades. This is not an overnight press release. The Pittsburgh story, the Indianapolis story, the Copenhagen are 30, 40-year-old stories. But they're creating new models that can't quite just move to other places, but could be adapted and adopted. And that's what makes new localism intellectually interesting and complex, but also exciting and, and, and a place where people can really put shoulder to the wheel. And one of the really interesting things about uh, horizontal problem solving is it means you need leaders who can think and act horizontally and not vertically because the nature of power has changed. And so if you've got to win in the new world, you've got to not only possess hard power, but soft power and utilize soft power appropriately. Because if what you have to do is sell and cajole across a broader platform rather than just command and control, you need a different kind of leadership. So again, that collaboration that you've talked about. Absolutely. You mentioned Pittsburgh. I'd like to talk to you about Pittsburgh. Coming from Philadelphia, as I know you do, Jeremy, I, it's hard for me to talk about Pittsburgh, but I'll let you talk about Pittsburgh. It's all good. <laughs> I was actually impressed about where Pittsburgh is today because the picture of Pittsburgh I have in my mind is the one that's not there anymore. You highlight the city as an example of where the new localism has blossomed. What has happened in Pittsburgh? So Pittsburgh is a 40-year-old overnight success story because 40 years ago, in the late 1970s, the bottom dropped out. The steel industry collapsed. And overnight, they lost tens and tens of thousands of jobs. What's interesting about Pittsburgh is that the corporate, political, civic, university leadership began to invest in the future. We start the story of Pittsburgh by talking about the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster mm -hmm. because the cleanup of Three Mile Island happened with mobile robots that were invented in Carnegie Mellon. And this is an incredibly fascinating story, actually, the story you tell about those robots. So go, go on. No, so essentially the driverless cars we have today, to some extent, you can trace back to the cleanup of Three Mile Island and these mobile robots. But what Pittsburgh did starting in the late 70s and early 80s is invest in technologies that we couldn't even describe. Robotics, artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data analytics, not just government funding, but private and civic funding flowing into the universities with the universities becoming a platform for ideas which ultimately got commercialized into the market through mature companies, through startups, through scale-ups, and ultimately through technology companies like Google or Amazon or Disney or Uber deciding we need to be in Pittsburgh, not because they're throwing tax subsidy at us, because that's where the talent is, that's where mm -hmm. the faculty is, that's where the ideas are. This is the next generation economic development. Be the best 21st century version of yourself. Invest at scale in a sustained way. Think about the long term. So Pittsburgh was always a beautiful city. Once the steel industry left, you could actually breathe the air. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what they've uncovered is that, that sense of being a maker city that now makes other things. What amazed me is the image of Pittsburgh as a 21st century is so very different than the image of Pittsburgh that was portrayed by the current administration and where it should go because where the dominant political thinking in the moment seems to be is to return to the past. But the point you're making in this case study of Pittsburgh is that the past is way gone. The future has taken hold in Pittsburgh. Although we would say there's continuities with the past. I mean, okay. the great thing about the Pittsburgh story as Bruce said, is that it was always a great maker city. It just makes different things. Mm -hmm. And so some of the skills, some of the dynamism of the Pittsburgh that helped forge the steel industry, right, is now the Pittsburgh that is forging very different kinds of technologies. So it was always a place where design and production came together in really interesting ways, where new technologies were applied. We just don't think of that in that way, going back to the early part of the 20th century. It's the best 21st century version of what it was before. And so the reinvention of American cities, the reinvention of the U.S., doesn't mean a complete disconnection from its past. Mm -hmm. It means the reattribution of its past to the future. 
there's that old New Yorker cartoon about mm -hmm. New York. If you apply it to the United States, you would think that the U.S. starts and ends with San Francisco, Seattle, Boston, and New York, mm -hmm. maybe Austin. What we say in this book is there are incredible assets in many of our older industrial cities because we built great advanced research institutions, whether it's Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh, whether it's Washington University in St. Louis, whether it's Georgia Tech in Atlanta, the list goes on and on and on. And what makes the United States so different from any other parts of the world is we have so many middleweight cities that are globally competitive. And that's the Pittsburgh story. If you invest at scale in a sustained way off of what you do well, you can basically build your future. You also tell the story of Indianapolis, which you have a great anecdote. I don't know if it was Kurt Vonnegut you quoted, <laughs> who was, you know, Indianapolis waits one day for Indy 500 and then the other 364 days to have miniature golf. That city is no longer there either. I it, mean, there's still those touchbacks to the past, it, but it, it's a it's new a, city. It's a city like Pittsburgh that if you went there in the 1970s, you would wonder, does it have a future? You know, frankly, the same thing couldn't be said about Boston. We forget that in the 1970s, Boston, Massachusetts was on everybody's list of distressed American cities. True. We can't even think of it in that way now. But if you went back to Indianapolis in the 1970s, it was a city where it was a ghost town, right? So civic leaders, business leaders, others came together and they said, we need to revitalize Indianapolis. And part of what they did in the first few decades is they organized themselves around becoming a sports mecca. And they brought in the Pan-American Games. They became the amateur sports capital. The NCAA headquarters is there. They did great things. They stole the Baltimore Colts. They stole the Baltimore Colts. <laughs> but at the end of the day, right, and my, you know, my, my heart goes out still. But at the end of the day, they understood that was limited. But what they had done is in doing that, they had invented a kind of civic governance system about thinking about the place, thinking about the long term, thinking about how we invest in the long term. With help from institutions like the Lilly Endowment and many others, they began to say, can we take what we learned about investing in making ourselves a sports center to being a life sciences center? And they did the same thing through the Central Indiana Corporation. And they are now one of the leading life science places in America. And so Indianapolis, in the same way, and that's a story of collaboration, right? It's a story of collaborating to compete. How do they become a player in the global economy? And, you know, they had assets there in terms of universities, in terms of some very, very high-quality medical institutions, high-quality companies, and they built off of that. They used money that could take higher risks than certain kinds of private money. Obviously, philanthropy can do that. They did it at scale. They did it with a long-term perspective, and they are moving in the right direction. What I like about the Indianapolis story is both in the mechanics of collaboration. When they get together as the Central Indiana Corporate Partnership, they meet to decide not to discuss. Mm -hmm. And that's because they've organized private and civic wealth. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars of private and civic capital that is dedicated to invest in what they're good at, biosciences, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is a model that can be adapted all across the United States and across the world. Capital is not the constraint. The constraint is whether you're organizing yourself. How are cities going to pay for the future? We define the future, investing in the future first, in three ways. Investing in infrastructure, investing in innovation, and investing in inclusion. And we think there are three different aspects to this that are important. The one is we have to maximize the public wealth that exists. And we talk about that with respect to what cities and municipalities and counties own and trying to understand whether they're getting the right return on that investment and whether they can maximize that in the future. The second is it's really important to organize for leadership, to organize private wealth so that it has some kind of a long-term public purpose. And we, in the last 20 or 30 years, have invented lots of instruments and lots of intermediaries to do that. We show lots of examples of that in the book, but we need to take it to a scale that it is not currently at. But we have philanthropies and impact investors and lots of capital intermediaries and quasi-public agencies that have done some terrific things, but they have to do even more because private capital is largely place agnostic. And so it will come there when the projects and the deals are for it. That's a really important part. 
Finally, of course, is that the regular old way through public revenue. But there are two parts to this. Increasingly, cities have got to make the case to their voters through referenda that new money they want to ask for is going to be targeted for something that makes sense and is going to be well spent. We have the great example of what Mayor Garcetti did in Los Angeles with a huge referendum for public transportation, which passed recently. At the same time, cities have got to take the existing lines of revenue and they've got to align that in a much better way. And we use examples of that as it relates to children, you know, where we have many, many different flows of money for kids, schools, that come through social welfare agencies, that come from adult services, that come for early childhood education. And while it's there, it's often not aligned in the right way to get the maximum benefit. So yes, the old-fashioned way of raising money from taxpayers, but organizing private wealth in a smarter way, which is there to be done, and maximizing public wealth. They're the three things that we talk about in the book. Yeah, I think what's really interesting about cities and what makes them so different from national or state governments is they do the math. They do the real math. They don't Mm -hmm. do the fake math. They decide what the vision is. We want universal pre-K. We want state-of-the-art transit system. We want 10,000 tech jobs in our downtown. They do the math. And then they figure out how to finance it, public, private, civic, new mechanisms, new institutions. That's the way we're going to problem solve in the country today, and that's the way we're going to problem solve in the world. And it's exciting. I think what people should draw from this book more than anything else is the sense of positive, pragmatic, infectious energy, which is bubbling up from below. And I think that comes through in the book, actually. It does. Great. One of the themes that comes up in your book, too, is the issue of inclusion. We're clear that in the long term, none of what we talk about will work unless you can also include more people and places that have been left out of the growth in the economy. And so we use examples. We look at Philadelphia and some other places, and we look at examples of the way in which we can have a more inclusive economy as we move forward. We devote a chapter to that. We look at ways in which you can intermediate between where the growth sectors of the economy are and where the lowest-income people live in particular neighborhoods. There we use Philadelphia as an example. We look at the important innovations that are going on that have to continue to go on in the K-12 system. We talk a lot about the importance of social capital in low-income places and how the right kind of organization of social capital helps those places represent their own needs and talk about what they need for to be revitalized. And we talk about the ways in which we have to think about cities not only as managing an education system, but as being places where there's got to be a broad learning environment from cradle to career, as Mayor Fisher in Louisville talks about it. So we talk about the extension of the common K-12 system from the earliest years all the way after high school to connect people through community colleges and vocational training so that they can become part of the middle class. It's far beyond just putting a drugstore in a neighborhood and hoping that you'll it is grow, far beyond that. To grow the and local economy long, that way. And it is long-term. So the same long-term perspective that you have to take in saying, how do we make this city become part of the future in new technologies, that same long-term perspective has to exist around how do we make sure that people in places that have been left out of the growth of the economy are included. You focus in the book not only on the United States. You have a chapter that talks about Copenhagen. What is about to change there that you would like to highlight? Well, Copenhagen, you know, today is understood to be the third wealthiest city in the world. And if you go there, the biggest threat to your personal safety is to be hit by a cyclist because half of the people as they commute to work is by cycle. But 30 years ago, Copenhagen was flat on its back. It was 18% unemployment. The city was essentially fiscally bankrupt. So they invented a new model of both regenerating the core of the city, the old harbor, the area, the Orestad district between the downtown and the airport, but also creating revenues that they can invest in the city's future. In this case, state-of-the-art modern transit system. What they created was a publicly owned, privately driven corporation the Copenhagen City and Port Development Corporation. They took all the land and the buildings 
that the government owned, both the national government and the local government owned in this Oristad district in the Old Harbor. And they put it under the control of this corporation. And then this corporation went about its business with developers and investors and others in regenerating the core of the city. And the only difference was that the revenues from land sales and land leases then went to service the debt on a modern transit system. So in the United States, when we think about building transit, our first impulse is to go to the voters and get perhaps sales tax or other taxes to pay for the transit, or maybe if you're lucky enough to get some federal money, which is obviously going away. But in Copenhagen, what they basically said is the wealth of the city will pay for our transit system or anything else we want. It could have been a different kind of infrastructure. It could have been investment in children. So this public asset, public wealth model is coming to the United States. It won't look exactly the same as Copenhagen or the Hoffman City effort in Hamburg or the Kalasatama effort in Helsinki, but the principles of using public wealth to invest in the future will be applied. Now, the issue here, which is so important and we must learn in America, is to focus not only on what we owe, but what we own. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to go to a public entity in the U.S. and say, give us your balance sheet, right? They can give you their budget, which will show you revenue and expenses. They can tell you something about their liabilities based on what bondholders have or the unfunded pension liabilities, but they can't really give you a market assessment for the most part of what they own. And the difficulty there is if you have a market understanding of what it is you own, you can make decisions from there. You can say, gee, if we were a little bit more effective in the management of those assets, could we generate X amount more in revenue? And would that be a way to invest back into the place? You know, the general sense in the U.S. in particular is our cities are poor mm -hmm. because they're only looking at what cities owe. But actually, there's enormous wealth in our cities. The government tends to own about 25 percent of the land, the right-of-ways, whole portions of the city, particularly along waterfronts. And by government, I just don't mean local city government. I mean public authorities, state governments, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to understand the value of public wealth. And then we need to understand this mechanism that's been invented in Northern Europe and in places like Singapore and bring it here. So are there any examples yet in the United States of where cities have thought about what they own and not what they owe? I think what's happening slowly is individual public authorities, stadia authorities, convention center authorities, parking authorities, ports authorities, airport authorities. I mean, we have a lot of authorities in the United States. Like no one really governs the city from the public sector because we create a lot of these independent authorities going back 50 or 100 years. But many of these individual authorities are now beginning to think about how could we maximize the value of the land that we own, which in many parts of the country are close to the downtowns, or the midtowns where there is real value right now. And this is not a call for privatization. I mm -hmm. mean, we're in favor of a middle path between poor management by government <laughs> that on the one hand doesn't generate the value for the public that it needs to and just selling assets. Now, there's some assets that sometimes make sense to sell and you can decide on that on a case-by-case -case basis. What we think is important is to say, can you... Use the techniques of the private sector to manage public assets in ways that will generate more wealth for the public. How do you do that? What's the nature of the governance that has to be in place? I don't think anyone would argue with us if we said that New York Port Authority is not managed to the highest degree possible in the interests of the citizens of New York. Right? Mm -hmm. I really think we could make that case by doing the right kind of audit there. And you could do that with lots of airport authorities around the country. The question isn't to do that in the service of private interests. The question is to do that in the service of public wealth and the reinvestment into the public sector. Your book ends with this question. So what will it take for cities to adapt and tailor the transformative innovations invented in Pittsburgh, Indianapolis, and Copenhagen, and other cities? And your answer is very definite and definitive. The key missing ingredient is leadership. What do you mean by that? And what kind of leadership? Well, I think leadership comes in many forms, obviously. But the first 
element of leadership is you understand reality. Mm -hmm. And for a long time in the United States, or frankly in other parts of the world, there was a sort of a waiting for Godot kind of attitude. Well, if we're dealing with this issue or that issue or this challenge or that challenge, ultimately the national government will wake up and come in and provide us with the resources and the capacity to solve it. Not going to happen. And so I think what we're basically saying here is we have a tremendous number of leaders in the United States at the local level. Some of them are elected, like mayor, city council, county executive. Some are heads of business groups, employers. Some are heads of universities. We don't lack for leaders in the United States. But what is happening now is the fundamental recognition that solutions are going to have to be bottom up. And we're going to have to repurpose institutions, create new institutions, new financial instruments to basically unlock the capital so that we can actually crack at our hard challenges. That's our main challenge right now. For decades, we were waiting for someone else to solve our problems. Over. Done. Has anyone looked at the recent federal tax reform bill? <laughs> this podcast is recorded in December of 2017. <laughs> <laughs> the federal government, like Elvis, has left the building and is not coming back. Mm -hmm. Jeremy and Bruce, thank you for taking the time today to come by and talk to us about the new localism. Great. Thanks for having us. Great. Thank you. You can learn more about The New Localism and buy it on our website or wherever you buy books. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holster, to producers Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna, to Bill Finan, who does the book interviews, and to Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahan, and Rebecca Weiser for design and web support. Our intern is Stephen Lee. And finally, Thanks to David Nassar for his support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, where you can also subscribe to Intersections, 5 on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. If you do visit Apple Podcasts, please rate and review the show. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dudes. <laughs>